morning, everyone. It really is a great pleasure to be able to join with you today and uh, to celebrate this, this, this day that the Lord has given us, how precious it is. And uh, it's a great thrill for me to be able to be here with you and to be able to share with you. And it, it, I always say that because it always is. Because what I delight in doing is encouraging Christians around God's Word to believe that the Bible is the truth right from the very beginning. Now, many Christians are confused by what we hear and see going on in our world today. And, you know, there's hardly a day that goes past without some sort of a headline that tells us that this evolutionary story is a proven fact. You know, um, I should just point out, I suppose, and define my terms here. So when I talk about evolution today, what I mean is an attempt to explain the existence of everything in the universe in purely natural terms. Now that sounds okay. It sounds quite reasonable if you're doing science. Surely you should... Uh, oh, I seem to have lost her. No, it's disappeared. If I stand in front of this, it won't help. Although, that'll be difficult, but I like to move. <laughs> so can you hear me okay at the back? Yep, okay. So, it sounds alright to explain everything in purely natural terms, but if you think about it, when you do that, what you are actually doing by assumption is excluding the supernatural. And if you exclude the supernatural, it's essentially the same as saying there is no God. So what that means is that the evolutionary story that we hear and see so much about is actually atheism dressed up in scientific garb. Now, often people don't understand that. But if it's an atheistic worldview, then naturally it's going to conflict with what the Bible says. Because the Bible, of course, begins, as we saw with the young people, with that very first statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when I was growing up as a young man, I used to believe that perhaps God used evolution to create. It seemed to make sense to me. But it did on the one hand, but on the other, I had a lot of questions that I could not answer. And it was because of those unanswered questions, I was not confident in my faith. I was still a Christian. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution, but you have to be a confused Christian. And uh, it was only after my postgraduate work that I understood that not only could I believe that the Bible was true, because all the evidence points that way, but that I should believe it because it forms the foundation stone of the gospel message. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, foundations. Now, young people today are asking a lot of questions, aren't they? And this was uh, the result of a survey done recently in scripture classes in New South Wales. And three of the top four questions that were asked were these. How can I know that God exists? Good question, isn't it? How can I believe in a good God when there's so much suffering? Has anyone ever been asked that question? Anybody? Yep. If you haven't, maybe you need to share your faith more actively because I'll bet you it will come up. And the third one, doesn't evolution prove that God doesn't exist? See, these are young people, teenagers, in scripture classes in New South Wales schools. And these are the questions. And as I travel around to many different churches, I find... There is very often an absence of young people because by and large the church in the 20th and 21st century does not effectively answer those questions and so our young people end up ill-equipped to handle the indoctrination of the evolutionary worldview 
And remember what evolution is really about? It starts with the assumption there is no God. In fact, a survey was done in the US recently and it showed that some 70% of Christian children brought up in a Christian home and in the church will walk away from their faith after they leave home. Friends, that's a terrible statistic, 70%. Now, I'm sure you get different numbers if you survey different denominations and, and, and countries, but the point is no percentage is acceptable, is it? I just want to share a testimony with, um, uh, with you from an interview with Dan Brown. Dan Brown was the man who uh, wrote the book The Da Vinci Code. Uh, there was a movie about it some years ago. and He's quite a high-profile guy, but it's interesting what his life journey was like. He said this, I was raised Episcopalian, which I guess is the equivalent of, uh, of Anglican here, and I was very religious as a kid. Then in my eighth or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang, but here it says God created heaven and earth in seven days, which is right. And this was the answer he got. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys don't ask that question. Friends, that's not the way to answer an inquiring teenager, is it? A light went off and I said, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me and I've just gravitated away from religion. Can you see how important it is that we are able to give answers? And in fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are to always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And friends, this is what I could not do as a young man. Now, I, I don't mean the gentleness and respect bit. I mean that I did not have answers to my questions. Friends, there are two trees that we can think of here. And uh, I want to draw this analogy to try and explain the effects that our, our beliefs have. Now, these trees put down roots, of course, and they are like our beliefs. And they, of course, produce fruit. They are the results of what we believe. So, one of these trees has its roots down into the assumption, the evolutionary assumption, that there is no God. The other has its roots that there is a God, and in particular, the God who's revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. Now, if there is no God, that means that man alone decides what is true and what is not. But if there is a God, then God's word must be the truth. Does that make sense? Now, if there is no God, then the universe must have made itself through natural processes. And that story, of course, is called the evolutionary story. But if there's a creator God, and his word tells us that he created, as in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, then that must be true. Now, I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here, because just like me, there are Christians, well, I used to be, rather, there are Christians who actually believe that God used evolution to create. But that produces a confusion that I spoke of earlier. And as we go through this morning, you'll understand why it becomes very confused. So essentially, there are these two trees, two belief systems. So if we look at what God's Word says, His special revelation to us, then we can build what you might call a biblical worldview, a way of seeing the world around us. And I've depicted it here as uh, the seven seeds. Firstly, the Bible tells us there was a perfect creation, but man rebelled, and that brought corruption into the earth, it brought the curse 
of sin and death. Then God brought judgment onto the face of the earth in a global cataclysmic event called Noah's Flood. After which came the Tower of Babel when the languages of the land were, of, the, of the nations were confused and the nations spread out over the face of the earth. And at just the right time in history, Jesus came, God in human form, to pay the price for our rebellion against him. And then at Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given, the church was born, and the Bible tells us that at the end of the age, there'll be a consummation, a new heaven and a new earth. But friends, it all starts with and depends upon, in the beginning, God. So there was, if you will, a causal agent behind the whole of this universe. What do we discover about man from God's special revelation? Well, we discover that we were made in God's image. That makes each and every one of us precious in God's sight. We discover that we are loved by God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that we were created for relationship with him and, of course, with each other. But if we look at the answer to this question from the evolutionary and secular point of view, or the atheistic point of view, what do we learn from man's reasoning? Well, we hear that there was this um, big bang when apparently absolutely nothing became absolutely everything as a result of a quantum fluctuation. And then from that came all the galaxies and stars, and then geological evolution took place, the Earth formed in our case, and then somehow or other, um, through a process called chemical evolution, inanimate chemicals became the first living self-replicating cell. And then the processes of biological evolution, uh, random uh, actions and natural selection led to the diversity of life that we see. And ultimately at the top of the pile, we have the evolution of human beings. And all of that is predicated on the assumption of in the beginning, nothing. Now, friends, that leaves us suspended in this natural world without a cause, a direction, or a purpose. So what is man, according to the evolutionary view? Bertrand Russell, we're just a curious accident in a backwater. Peter Atkins, an Oxford professor, just a bit of slime on the planet. I'm feeling encouraged this morning. Is this <laughs> Stephen Jay Gould, a fortunate cosmic afterthought a tiny little twig on the enormously arborescent bush of life. Now gets 10 out of 10 for English, doesn't he? <laughs> but how bleak is that? And uh, Professor Richard Dawkins, we live in a universe which has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Don't you wonder why these guys get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> and this is the classic, the psychologist. In the end, nothing matters. If you really think about evolution and why we human beings are here, you have to come to the conclusion that we are here for absolutely no reason at all. Wow. I like this little cartoon. Your science class went for ages. You seem a bit down. What happened? No, oh, the teacher said we're nothing special. We just came from pond scum. We've just evolved apes. What are they teaching in your next class? self-esteem. <laughs> Can you see the dilemma that this raises? You see, when the tree's roots go down into the evolutionary soil, ultimately there's no purpose in life at all. And don't we see that reflected in our society these days? Youth suicide, just, you know, if, if it's not working out, I'm just going to check out and I might take a few people with me. What's the point? 
It amounts to nothing. But, friends, if there's a God, if he's the creator of the universe, and in particular, the creator of you and me, then there's a purpose in our lives. Who's got a purpose in their life today? Anybody? Yeah, that's great. A church full of purposeful people. That's fantastic. You see, we're not cosmic accidents. We were designed and made by a loving God and equipped with gifts and abilities for his purposes and his glory. And we only find satisfaction and fulfilment when we are living in accordance with his purposes. But when does life begin? That's an interesting challenge, isn't it? The Bible makes it very clear. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful at the time my mother conceived me. Which means that from the point of conception, the Bible teaches that we are human beings. And you know, science has actually caught up with that. This is an interesting quote from New Scientist recently. DNA technologies indisputably prove that the unborn child is a whole human being right from the moment of fertilisation. That all abortions terminate the life of a human being and that the unborn child is a separate human patient under the care of modern medicine. You see, even the secularists understand, really, that we are people right from the point of conception. And you know, with the aid of amazing technologies, we know that the little child there is definitely a little person. We have our ninth grandchild that's minus four and a half, half months old at the moment, and uh, we've discovered just this weekend that we have a grandson on the way. And my daughter and uh, her husband, our son-in-law, are absolutely delighted that they have a little child. They recognise the value of this little person. But friends, that's not the story in our society, is it? Let me share with you a thing that you probably already know, but maybe you haven't seen graphically. I'm going to show here the Australian war deaths that have happened in uh, the last century. And each tombstone represents 10,000 people who have died. World War I, nearly 60,000 died. World War II, over 20,000 died. The Korean War, the Vietnam War. But what about the war on the unborn? Look at that. What a terrible tragedy. And that, friends, is in our society. You see, people think to themselves, you know, you get rid of spare cats, why not get rid of spare kids? because there's no value placed on human life. But what about when life ends? Evolution has played a major role in paving the way for the acceptance of euthanasia. Evolution reduces humans to the level of animals, making it just as acceptable to put down a human being as to put down a dog. There's so much discussion now, isn't there, about euthanasia in our society. But if God has given life, man has no right to take it away. In fact, the very objective that the medical profession has is to try to save, to heal, to restore life. So when does life end? The scriptures are clear. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands, not in our hands. They're in God's hands. So friends, the tree which has roots into the atheistic soil concludes that life is expendable at either end, or for that matter, in the middle. <coughs> But the tree with roots into creation shows that we are sacred in God's eyes because we're made in the image of God. But where did man come from? You know, the evolutionary story says that we descended recently from the apes, just recently swung down out of the trees apparently, and from the apes have come various branches of uh, human beings. And this belief has had terrible consequences in our attitudes towards different racial groups. Um, there was a very sad era in Australia's history when 
Aboriginal people were actually killed to prop up the theory of evolution because their bodies were shipped over to Europe to put on display in museums. And in this particular article, Cora H. Wills, who later became the mayor of Bowen, confessed about killing an Aboriginal person who was later used for science. And there are many such instances of this. You see, it's not that people who believe in evolution are racist. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the evolutionary belief gave a scientific respectability to racism. But what does the Bible say about the origin of all the different races today? Well, if we look at the opening verses in the uh, in chapter 11 in the book of Genesis, we read about a fascinating incident called the Tower of Babel. And uh, what had happened here was immediately after the flood, God had instructed mankind to spread out over the face of the earth. And at, at this point in the Bible's history, there was only one language spoken. And if you think about it, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because Adam and Eve would have had a language, and they taught that to their children, and taught that to their children, and taught that to their children. This could go on, but you get the message, right? So if anybody spoke to you, you would understand them entirely, wouldn't you? But just imagine what it would have been like on that day. Perhaps I could ask you a question here. Who speaks a language other than English here today? Yeah, lots of hands go up, that's great. So if you hear someone speaking and you can't understand them, it's no big deal, is it? You think they're just talking another language. But imagine what it would have been like that day. You have wake up in the morning, have breakfast, head off to the, perhaps you're working on the tower that day, and you, you turn up and, and everybody is just babbling at you. And, I mean, you might actually work in a place like that, I'm not sure. But, you, but just think about it. Yesterday you could speak to these people, today you cannot you would realise that something profound has happened. And in the midst of all the confusion, you hear someone speaking and you can understand them. You know, you'd go straight to that person, wouldn't you, and say, what is going on? I can imagine how small groups with common language would rapidly form up and they would flee away from the tower. Now, friends, something interesting happens when small population groups start to reproduce. What happens is that recessive genes, which could not so easily express their characteristics in a larger population could then do so. And I'm talking here about things like you know, facial features, nose shape, eye shape, for instance, hair colour and texture. And, and, and what about this, um, uh, this question of skin colour? How many different skin colours do you think there might be in the world today? Who thinks there'd be more than 100? More than 100 different skin colours? Okay, so everybody else must think it's less. So who thinks it's between 10 and 100 different skin colours? Who thinks I'm trying to trick you this morning? <laughs> I'm really offended. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. You know, friends, actually, there is only one skin colour. You know, the colour of our skin is determined by a pigment called melanin. It's a reddish-brown pigment. And if your genes are programmed to manufacture lots and lots of melanin, you'll have dark hair, dark skin, like our friends at the, at the back there. If you're like me, though, and you're something of a degenerate mutant, then, I laugh because a lot of you are, then you'll have very fair skin. In fact, I'm called white, but I'm not white. This is actually just a very light tan colour. So we're actually the same colour, just a, a massive variety of shades of the same colour. And this, uh, you know, people often ask, what colour would Adam and Eve's skin have been? Now, when I was growing up, 
I used to see picture books with Adam and Eve, they're blonde, blue eyed, you know. <laughs> it's completely impossible. You see, in Adam and Eve's genes were all the information for making all the skin colours from so-called white to so-called black. So it's most likely they would have had mid-brown skin. Isn't it interesting that white people lie in the sun to go brown? <laughs> you know, this was interestingly confirmed recently. This young couple, as you can see, they had mid-brown skin. They each had a so-called black father and white mother. And they had twin girls. And here they are. How cute are they? Now, friends, that's just one generation to produce that range of skin colours. You see, it doesn't take thousands or millions of years for these different physical features to become locked into different population groups. In fact, we had an article about them in our Creation magazine recently. We call it the Two-Tone Twins. And we produced a little leaflet about it that was uh, very popular. Um, and we have a number of leaflets, by the way, on the tables out there, all of which are free. So please make sure that you take one before you go today. Now, we caught up with them uh, again a little later. Uh, interestingly, still on the same stool, but... <laughs> Friends, what had happened at the Tower of Babel was that a common gene pool was divided up along language barriers. And that is what has given rise to all the different ethnic groups that we see in the world today. But friends, we are all part of the one human family, aren't we? And doesn't it make sense? Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters, the Bible tells us, all the way down to Noah and his family who survived the flood. And then after them, from the Tower of Babel, all those groups diversified, spread out over the earth and became the different ethnic groups that we see today. So friends, the evolutionary belief actually is an excuse for racism. But when we understand that we are part of one human family, just as the Bible says, that greatly changes how we see fellow human beings on this planet. You know, I think you could sum it all up a bit like this. And uh, here on the left-hand side, we have the, uh, the secular culture with evolution, man decides truth as the foundation. I suppose what's underneath that is the words, there is no God. And emerging out of this come all the social issues that we confront today. Now, over on the right-hand side, we have the church that obviously believes there is a God, God's word is truth, and that tells us about creation. But unfortunately, within the church, there are those who are busy trying to destroy their very foundations by not believing what the Bible says at the beginning. There are those who quite rightly are attacking the social issues. Um, sadly, there are some Christians who are having shots at other Christians. Uh, some are just sort of firing randomly off into space and do anything. And, and then sadly, there are those who have no idea there's even a battle going on out there. <laughs> So friends, what do we do? I believe the solution to this problem is that the church needs to be busy firstly rebuilding the foundation so that we as believers understand the Bible is God's word, that the opening chapters are the truth and the whole of the gospel message rests upon those opening chapters. We then need to start attacking the foundations of our secular culture, pointing out that the evolutionary story is totally flawed we should continue to address the social issues. But as, as we do these things, I believe we'll start to see the crumbling of the uh, uh, humanistic, secular humanistic worldview that we live in today. So we could summarise all that. Moral relativism is what emerges out of the belief there's no God and that evolution is true. 
but their moral absolutes are absolutely clear from the scriptures. You see, friends, what's happened over the years is that the scientist has presented the theologian with what is considered to be the irrefutable evidence for the millions of years. And the theologian, sadly, has thought, oh, wow, these guys are scientists. I guess I'll have to believe them. Um, I'll just add them to the Bible. And that has truly been a tragic compromise. You know, there are all sorts of ways in which people try to fit the millions of years into the Bible. And, uh, you know, every one of those schemes is taught somewhere or other at a Bible college in this country. Tragically, very few Bible colleges actually teach what the Bible says and defends it right from the very beginning of Genesis. But you see, every one of these ideas has a fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw is that they each place death before Adam's sin. You see, think about it. Here we have the Garden of Eden, and God declares that it's all very good. Now, if the millions of years are true, then that means underneath Adam and Eve's feet are layers and layers of rock with fossils showing death, suffering and disease over millions of years. What a nonsense. That makes no sense of the gospel message at all. In fact, it invites significant challenges. I'm sure you all know who this guy is, Stephen Fry. He was uh, interviewed at the beginning of last year, actually. and uh, No, two years ago, sorry, January 15. And uh, he was asked, what would happen if you, uh, when you die, you end up uh, discovering, oops, there actually is a God. What, what would you say to God, the interviewer put to him? And uh, this is how Stephen Fry replied. Bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? The God who created this universe, if it was created by a God, is quite clearly a maniac, an utter maniac. Friends, can you see the confusion that is caused by believing the evolutionary story and then trying to believe the Christian story. But you see, I couldn't answer this sort of a challenge when I was a young man. I had no idea because I believed that God used evolution to create. But it's a nonsense, isn't it? You see, the only way we can begin to answer that challenge is to go back to the beginning. And I uh, found this illustration of a T-shirt that kind of drives the point home. If God used evolution to create, then you could equally say God works in mysterious, ineffective and breathtakingly cruel ways. But friends, that's not the God of the Bible, is it? The God of the Bible is a God of love, compassion, mercy, faithfulness. He would not use such a brutal, random, purposeless process like evolution. You see, we could sum it up like this. The evolutionary story places millions and millions of years of death and struggle and suffering before Adam. But the Bible says it was Adam's actions in the garden that led to death and suffering coming into the world. You see, it's the other way around, isn't it? We are to blame for the mess that the world is in. God did not create us a mess. And you know, this historical record in Genesis is supported 100% in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. But you see, if death came from sin and sin came from Adam, you can't have death before Adam. So that means that the evolutionary story is theologically impossible. 
So friends, that was the point that changed it for me as a young man. When I realised that you cannot ascribe suffering and death to a good God,